You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. As we, as we look at the, uh, at the Bible today, uh, we're going to see that chapter 34 is pretty depressing. It's kind of a, kind of a sad chapter. There's, there's a lot of injustice that happens and wrongdoing. And uh, the principle I really just need you to remember as we, as we go through this is two wrongs don't make a right. You guys learned that growing up, amen? Like amen. Two wrongs don't make a right. And I always hated that because when someone wronged me, I just felt like I got to wrong them back. That's just how life works. And, um, and, and what, the reason that two wrongs don't make a right are, is because normally the second wrong is greater than the first wrong because we feel like we have to one-up one another. And so the second punch is harder, the second insult is more severe, and, and uh, conflict always tends to escalate itself. And so one insult gets a greater insult, which, which brings a greater insult. And, and what we see is that wrongdoing often incites more wrongdoing. And this is why Jesus' teaching um, was so radical, um, is so radical. The, the idea that we would uh, turn the other cheek when someone strikes us or hits us, that we would turn our other cheek to them and let them hit the other cheek as well, is, is just mind-blowing to us. Or the idea of loving our enemies is so revolutionary that, that we honestly struggle to comprehend um, his teaching on this. And so um, as we jump into uh, Genesis 34, I want you to see three things in this narrative. Uh, number one, we'll see that injustice is real. It happens. Um, it, it is a reality in the fallen and depraved world that we live in. The second thing I want you to see is that there is also imperfect justice, things that might look like justice being served, but they really fall short of, of God's idea of justice. And uh, thirdly and finally, we'll look at God's perfect justice, ultimately that's carried out uh, through his son Jesus on the cross and then the consummation of all things in his return. Um, so let's jump into that. Number one, injustice. And, and to show you this injustice, I really want to give you a little bit of backstory, just in case you haven't been with us or, or, or not familiar with the Genesis narrative. And we started uh, early part of the year in Genesis 1, looking at Adam and Noah and, and this man named Abraham. And we've been following these patriarchs through the book of Genesis. And as we get to Abraham, God calls Abraham out and says, I'm going to give you this land and I'm going to make of you a great family, many descendants. And so God promises this to him. Um, as a sign of the promise, he gives him a covenant of circumcision, which comes into play in this story. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But Abraham leaves a, a pagan nation um, and leaves the worship of many false gods to come and worship the one true God. And, and as he comes and establishes his family, um, he has a son, Isaac, who is the son of the promise. And then Isaac has a son, Jacob, which is where we find ourselves today. Jacob is a, is a pretty nasty guy. He's, he's really one of the worst characters in the Bible. He's just someone that's, that's really just slimy and, um, and grimy and, and really morally weak. And, um, and he does a lot of really unsettling things. The one thing that Jacob does that's obedient to God is he buys the first property in the promised land. And so where we pick up the story, if you're unfamiliar with Jacob's story, what you need to know about him today is that we pick up today's story that he has just finally kind of put his money where his mouth is on God's promise. God had told them to live in this land, and Jacob had actually bought property in the promised land of Israel. And so as he's bought this property, for the first time, there, there's God's people living in the promised land on land that they own. They're not just travelers through the land. And as soon as they settle in, tragedy strikes 
with his daughter Dinah. She's going to be raped in chapter 34. We're going to see the narrative of sexual assault that comes upon her and the injustice that claims her. And, and we're going to see how Jacob and the men of his family react to that. And, and we're going to see this great injustice fall upon the daughter of God, Dinah. Now, Jacob had 11 sons at this time. They're named in Genesis chapter 30. Um, we know eventually he would have a 12th son that would make the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, one daughter is listed in Genesis 30, Dinah. There are no other daughters that are listed. This doesn't mean that there weren't other daughters. Um, most likely there were lots of other daughters. Um, other daughters are mentioned in this narrative. Uh, but most likely uh, Moses is writing about Dinah and mentions her name because of the importance in the narrative that's coming up in chapter 34. And so Dinah is the only uh, daughter mentioned in Genesis 30. And as we get to chapter 34, what we see is that calamity continues to follow Jacob. All of his life, just trouble and calamity has been all around him. Now, remember, Jacob's name means usurper, means deceiver. He spends his life being dishonest and tricking people and deceiving people. And, and, and what, what, what I want you to see is that if you live your life like Jacob, I think what you can bank on is, generally speaking, that, that you will have calamity all over your life as well. That when our lives are marked by deception, they're also marked by disorder. That, that things will continue to um, eradicate and fall apart the more and more that we live deceptively and dishonestly. And so the first thing I want to call you to today is to seek to be genuine with all people, that you would seek to be honest and upright and kind, contrary to the way that Jacob had lived his life. Now, Jacob's deceitful character isn't solely to blame for this injustice that happens to his daughter, Dinah, but it certainly doesn't protect his daughter from it. And so let's look at this story starting in verse one, Genesis chapter 34, verse one, the word of the Lord says, now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Now, we're not given Dinah's intention for leaving uh, her, her family's tent, her, her home, and going out to see the women of the land. Um, I, I think the most natural reading is it's a natural curiosity from this young woman as she's living in a new place. She wants to go check it out and see what the women are like in that land that she's living in. Whatever the case, it seems very innocent. Notice the crime is something that's acted upon her. She doesn't pursue Shechem. She's not out flirting with Shechem. It makes it very clear that he seizes her. That's the word that's used. He seized her and lay with her, meaning um, that he forced himself sexually upon her and humiliated her. Make no mistake, this is sexual assault and rape. And, you know, we've, we've learned from uh, Law and Order, SVU, that sexually based offenses are especially heinous, right? And USA only shows um, Law and Order now. It's like the Law and Order channel. So, um, and we learn that there. And, and the reason that they say that, the reason they say sexually based offenses are especially heinous, I think, is because it violates the most intimate parts of who we are, particularly for those of us who believe in God and worship the son Jesus, that, that we know that all, all of us are created in the image of God, the imago Dei. And as we're created in the image of God, he has given us a command to be fruitful and multiply. And so in that, in, he has created us to be intimate beings with sexual desires that are not ungodly, that are actually given to us by God. And so when that is perverted, and when injustice is acted upon that, it is, it is uh, 
It is horrible in God's sight and should be in man's sight as well. It violates the most intimate parts of who God has created us to be. And for those of you who have been sexually assaulted, been sexually abused, or been even just sexually mistreated, I want, I want to say that, that I want to recognize that hurt and that injustice that's been done to you. And furthermore, I want to tell you that God sees your plight and he hates what's been done to you. I think one thing I've learned as a pastor is, is how, how, how frequent this sin is in the lives of many of us and how frequently we try to ignore it because we think it's embarrassing or we don't want to air out our trauma to other people. But the reality is, is that this injustice is something that, that is deplorable in God's sight, and he hates that it happens. And so I want to, this morning, apologize to you and say I'm sorry for the times that Christians don't acknowledge what's been done to you if you've been a victim of this sort of injustice. I want to I say I'm sorry for the time that the church has not pursued justice for you, to pursue predators, to bring them to justice. You know, what's even, even more heartbreaking is not just the fact that it happens, but that um, in today's time, the church and ministry environments have become safe spaces for predators to come into. And so the next time you get annoyed with a background check at New Heights Church, just remember, this will be no safe space for perverted predators. We got, like, we're like Liam Neeson up in here. We got men with a special set of skills, and we will find you if you're a sexual deviant, Okay. But sadly, it's not uncommon for Christians not only to not do anything about it, but to also blame the victims, adding injustice upon injustice. The 16th century reformer, John Calvin, great man, a lot of great theological writings, shaped my theology in a lot of really important ways, planted about a thousand churches in his lifetime in Europe. But in his commentary about Dinah's plight, he writes this, It is not to be doubted that in part the blame of the offense is upon Dinah herself, whereas she ought to have remained under her mother's eyes in the tent. John Calvin's dead wrong here. You need to know that there are some brilliant and smart men who will do some really stupid things and say some stupid things. Because all men are just that. Idiots. Amen? <laughs> But let me just say, this is wrong. This is, it, it's, it's actually disgusting that Calvin recorded in his commentary that Dinah was in part to blame. Listen, Dinah's not to blame whether in part or in whole. Dinah's story gives us an example of silent victims who are not visited by true justice. And we have a theological problem in front of us this morning. It's how do we look at such grave injustice and reconcile that with a God who could put an end to it with the snap of a finger or the, spoke, or the speaking of a word? After Shechem rapes her, not only does God not intervene, like lightning doesn't strike from heaven, not only does God not do anything crazy to stop that from happening, but after it happens, this predator continues to pursue his victim. Verse 3 says, his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now, my Nana used to read those books, you know, the books with the shirtless men and the long flowy hair, Fabio and whatever, whatever all their names are. Nana used to read those. And um, I used to look at them like, Man, I, don't, I don't know what's going on in those books. But I remember them sitting on her, on her nightstand and stuff. 
And, and when, I look at, when I look at verse 3, it almost sounds like a Fabio line, doesn't it? Or maybe a more modern example would be like Nicholas Sparks or whatever. It says his soul was drawn to Dinah. It almost sounds romantic. And it says that he loved her. Well, let me unpack what's going on in the Hebrew language. This is originally written in the word that's used is ahav in Hebrew, which, which we, don't, we don't have as many words for love in English as Hebrew and Greek does in the Bible. You know, like if you understand like middle school relationships, which no one does fully, but you really only have two words to work with, right? You like someone, which means some kind of casual interest, probably physical attraction. And then you love someone, which is what you do when you profess your affection for them and the Burger King drive-thru and they laugh at you. And there's really no in between there, okay? It's just, I like you and now I love you. But that's not the way it is in the Hebrew language. They had lots of words for love. And a have is the Hebrew word that's used here. And it says Shechem has this kind of love for her. What's really sickening is what this word was most commonly used to describe. This word was most commonly used to describe love for food. And it was an appetite word. In the same way that we would say I love Qdoba or I love Slim Jims. Uh, This here is saying Shechem loved the appetite that he had sexually for Dinah. And so you begin to see this isn't, this isn't a, a romantic type of passage at all. It's quite the opposite. There is no deep commitment, only a pursuit of sinful perversion. And let me just take a minute to, to speak to you men specifically. Whether you are married or not, if you are pursuing this type of affection from, from others, then you are in sin and you're in need of repentance. And you might need some, some, some men to get in your face and tell you that. Because what the Bible calls us to is a different kind of love called hesed, which means covenant love. It's translated as steadfast love in Scripture. The Bible calls us to commit to women, and if we want to have sex, then we want to get married and commit to protecting and caring for and, and um, unconditionally loving till death do us part. That's his said. That's covenant love. And that's the kind of love that's used for God toward his children, by the way. Here, Shechem makes a mockery of that and a perversion of it. And so how should Jacob respond when Shechem just openly rapes his daughter and professes not, not a marital love, a covenant love, but a, but a lustful, hungry love for his daughter? How should Jacob respond? Redneck men in the room, you know. He should clean his shotgun in front of him and maybe load it and pull the trigger, right? Like, it's, it's time for him to do what, what dads do. Well, Jacob fails once again. Verse 5 says, Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they come. You see, Jacob's been a coward his entire life, and you would hope that this was the day that it would change. You would hope that finally, after the rape of his little girl, finally he would stop being a coward, and even if he got killed, he would finally speak up and stand up for what's right. But when fear controls you, what usually happens is morality escapes you, and the same thing happens once again to Jacob. When fear consumes him, he becomes a coward, and he doesn't stand up for what's right. He doesn't even condemn Shechem and the rape of his daughter. He doesn't even publicly say that it was wrong. What's, what's even more disgusting to me is in verse 26, we actually learn that Dinah is still at Shechem's house. 
That, that evidently she's too afraid to leave. Potentially she's even held hostage there. And, and he, doesn't even, he doesn't even try to go rescue his daughter. He doesn't even pray. He doesn't even lament or grieve or cry out to God for the injustice that's been done. Rather, he says, man, all my boys are out at work right now, and I'm worried that I can't defend myself. Well, thankfully, Dinah had some brothers who wouldn't stand for this. And listen, there's a societal push for feminism, and there's a lot of it that's good. But, but women, let me just say, there's a lot of it that's ungodly, and that, that men can protect and respect women, and men protecting women is not chauvinistic, it's chivalrous, and it's part of what God calls us to do. Now, I know a lot of you women are super strong and can whoop my hind end, okay? If you don't need a man's help, we got you, we'll respect you, okay? But, but men are called upon to lead in Scripture. Men are called upon to, to protect. And so this is a, exactly a, a case where Donna needed saved she needed some, some guys to go to Shechem's house and set her free from her predator, her captive. And so scripture is clear that men acting like men includes protecting women. And thankfully, Dinah's brothers are not willing to allow her to remain in a predator's home. And so they're going to do something about it. Verse 7 says, The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. So Shechem brings in daddy here, brings his dad in to bail him out, and Hamor begins to make this a political action. That politically speaking, if, if they could take more of the daughters from Jacob's family, that they could marry them and they would give their daughters away to them and that they would actually politically form an alliance and become one nation. You see how gross this gets. Shechem even speaks up in verse 12, willing to pay anything for Dinah. In verse 12, it says, ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. You see that he is completely blinded by his lust and his sin. Noticeably absent from these conversations are any women. Dinah is not consulted. She's not gone to and rescued yet. Dinah's mother, Leah, is, is not heard from. The sisters who they're discussing of whether or not they should give them away or not considered. A great injustice is happening, and justice has to be served somehow. Christians, we are called upon to serve justice, to seek justice, to do justice. Micah 6, 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. I love that this verse tells us to do justice. Part of the reason is, is because I'm not real great at grammar. My wife, who's, who used to be an English teacher, reminds me of that all the time, that my grammar sucks. Um, but here, justice is a noun, and it, Micah 6, 8 uses it as a verb. That, that justice isn't just something that you hope happens. It's something you do. Now, Dinah's brothers are called upon to take action in justice. But what we're going to see is imperfect justice. And so point two is just that, imperfect justice. That although they do take action and they should take action, make no mistake, Shechem deserves to be put to death. That man should be slain for his crime against Dinah. But they take action in a way that dishonors God 
and they take action in a way that is overly severe. Again, why would we ever think two wrongs will make a right? I remember um, I used to ride the bus to school on Richard Hall's bus, and Richard Hall had a belt buckle with a largemouth bass on it that was as big as my head. And when he pulled over on Trace Creek, which is a one-lane road that you shouldn't pull over on, when he pulled over and got out of the driver's seat and came back, like you knew you were in trouble. And one time me and Andrew Davis got in a fist fight on the bus, and Richard pulled over to break us up, and I saw that largemouth bass just bouncing toward my head, and I was like, we've gone too far. Richard's disappointed in us. This is going to be bad. But I justified it, and he hit me first, right? I can hit him back because he hit me first. And this is, what, this is what wrongdoing does to us. Our depravity tells us that we can justify our actions because there was some injustice that happened to us in the first place. Well, Dinah's brothers do the same thing. And while fighting back can be good at times, and while I do think they should have carried out justice with Shechem and put him to death, they take it too far. They don't fight fairly. They do it deceitfully like their father, Jacob, and they dishonor God in the process. Look at what happens in verse 13. It says, The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. Now you need to know they're acting just like their dad here, just like Jacob's whole life had been characterized by deception. Here they um, answer in deceit. Verse 14 says, They said to him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Now, this is where the story gets interesting, okay? Now, circumcision was the, uh, was the cutting off of the foreskin of the males of Israel. It was a sign that was given by God to Abraham. Um, and the reason is we look at this and, you know, Jeremy loves circumcision. He always wants to teach about circumcision. But most of us look at this and like, this is a really strange part of the Bible, right? And, but the reason that God chooses this sign, although it's very strange to us, he's marking their reproductive organ because the, the covenant promise was descendants, was that they would have many offspring and build this great family for the glory of God. And so he marks their reproductive organ in this sacred religious covenant um, between God and man. And here they take it and they use it as a trick against their enemies. The very enemies that God wants to reach with the good news of grace, by the way, that God had always told Israel to go and to reach all the nations with the news of the one true God, but instead they use this covenant as a way to kill. And so they say, well, we might entertain this, but all of y'all are going to have to be circumcised. And so what happens here, all the men of, of this nation get together, and just like happens in most of life, when a bunch of men get together, they make a really stupid decision, right? So they all get together at the city gate, and they're like, yeah, let's all cut off our foreskins. I've ne Listen, I've never had any conversation with a group of men that's gone this poorly. Um, but, you know, it's, this is the peak of depravity here, Okay. So verse 21 says, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives. Let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. And so as they're going to perform this surgery on themselves, which I know is a little bit graphic, the plan is that while they are recovering from this, 
that the, that, uh, the sons of Jacob are going to bring about their revenge. Look at what happens. Let's pick up in verse 24. It says, All who went out to the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. I hope you see how sad this is, how unjust this is. This is not justice, this is revenge. That they create a city full of orphans and widows. Presumably, the women and children become slaves and concubines. This is an unspeakable genocide, and it's done at the hand of God's holy covenant sign of circumcision. Jen Wilkin commentates on this in a podcast and says, Circumcision, a sign of life, is used here as a cover for murder. They go on to compare it to the New Testament uh, sacrament of baptism, it, that it would be like someone being willing to be baptized and then drowning them in the baptism waters. That it's deplorable. It, it's taking God's justice and, and perverting it themselves into revenge. And I just can't imagine a city full of children with no father and wives with no husband and no income and society breaking down like that and Jacob and his family standing in the ruins of that saying, what do we do now? You see, we should seek after justice and retribution and punishment for crimes and wrongdoings. But child of God, you're never called upon in Scripture to seek revenge. The church is a group of forgiven people that forgive people. And that doesn't mean we ignore sin. That doesn't mean we let predators and criminals off the hook. But it means we don't personally avenge ourselves. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The old fable is true about the sun and the wind arguing about their strength. And they say, look at this man with his coat on. Who can, who can be the strongest to make him remove his coat? And the wind blows and blows and flexes his muscles and his strength, and the man just buttons his coat tighter, and the sun says, let me try, and just shines beams of warmth, and the coat comes off. The story of the Bible is that goodness wins, and love wins, and forgiveness and grace win, ultimately. But there is no true good and no true love without true justice. And so if we just forgive everyone, where's justice in that? Some of you who have been victimized by great injustice might be really frustrated at that idea that we would show grace to people who don't deserve it. But the message of Scripture is none of us deserve it. None of us deserve to be spared. All of us are deserving to be eternally punished in hell for our sins against a holy and perfect God. Let's look at His perfect justice. You see, there's a, 
an apologetic question that comes up often. The problem of evil, it's called. And the question is, if God is all-powerful and if he's all-knowing and if he's all-good, then how can evil even exist? How can it happen? Does he not want to stop it? Well, if he did want to stop it, he could, couldn't he? Or does he not know it's happening? But if, he, if he's all-knowing, he has to know it's happening. And how could a good God allow unjust things? And these questions lead many of us to kind of raise our fists to heaven and say, why won't God do something about this? But listen to me very clearly. The message of the Bible is he has done something about it and he is doing something about it. In the moments when you feel like he is most silent, you're not called to look forward. You're called to look back to a cross where God righted every injustice in the world. God is redeeming creation through the cross that mankind, through our sin, has hurled into the clutches of evil. God may seem silent in the aftermath of injustices, but he has spoken before injustice ever has. He has spoken what is right and good and true, and he has promised to take care and ultimately redeem all things for his glory. You know, an interesting thing about Genesis 34, especially as a preacher, is I look at this chapter and say, how in the world am I going to preach this to my church on Sunday? God is not mentioned in this chapter at all. There's no word from heaven. There's no prayer from the people. There's no lightning strike coming down on Shechem. God is simply not mentioned. And so as a preacher, what should I tell you about Genesis 34? What is the great application that you should learn when God isn't even mentioned in this part of the Bible? Well, let me tell you. It's a perfect picture of the calamity that exists when God is pushed to the side, when God is ignored. You know that, that darkness is not its own thing? If we turn off these lights, these, we got no windows in here and just black walls, it just gets pitch black in here. But it's not us letting darkness in here. It's us taking the light out of here that creates darkness. Listen, you don't have to dabble in witchcraft and the occult to have darkness in your life. You just simply have to drift away from the good light of Jesus Christ. And when God is nowhere to be seen in your rhythms of life, I promise you darkness will begin to be present. And it usually starts pretty innocent. I don't need to read my Bible. I don't, I don't need to... Listen, I know I didn't pray very much through this trial, but it's okay. I'll get back to it. I know I ha I've been lazy with church, and I haven't been uh, prioritizing the worship of God. I get all that, but I still love him. But all the while, we're just distancing ourselves further and further away from the light source, not realizing that puts us closer and closer to darkness being centered on our lives. And in chapter 34, the absence of God produces a deep darkness, produces a sad silence without the mention of justice or God himself. But what's beautiful is there's still a good message through this silence, that God still speaks through unjust silence. I read an article this week on the Gospel Coalition from a lady named Wendy Stringer, and she actually proposes that the silence is how God teaches us something in chapter 34. That by God not speaking, he shows us the importance of understanding what life is like without him. She says, the Hebrew word for steadfast love has said, not used in verse 3, speaks. Jacob, holding his peace in verse 5, speaks. Dinah's mothers and sisters absent in verses 8 through 17 speak. 
the unheard cries of the Hivite children and women in verse 29 speak. Dinah's voice, never recorded, speaks. Moses, inspired by God not to mention God, speaks. All of this silence speaks to the need of God. And you might foolishly think you hold some neutrality in your life, that you've kind of compartmentalized your faith, and you can do this little thing over here that you know is not pleasing to God, but it's not affecting you that much. And you can foolishly think that it is neutral, but I promise you there's no neutral territory in your life. And usually what you think is neutral is allowing darkness into your heart. All of these dark silences in this chapter speak to the need for God. And what happened to Dinah is this great injustice that's meant to teach us, but it points us to a greater injustice that would come much later. That an an innocent man, thousands of years later, would be condemned through an unfair trial, a man truly innocent with no sin at all in his life, the one truly perfect one that we worship our Savior would be put through this unfair trial. He was, as the same way Dinah was, he was avenged with the sword. You remember Peter draws his sword and cuts the ear off of a guard. And no doubt others would have joined in to this war to rally to support the rabbi that they loved. But Jesus says, no, Peter, put your sword away. For if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. Jesus himself stopped the violence to avenge himself. Those who should have stood up and defended him at his unjust trial held their peace like the coward Jacob did and for fear of their own lives refused to stand up and say truth. After his unjust murder, those whom he loved the most would be persecuted, tortured, and killed. Listen, God is not silent on issues of injustice and evil. He has lived through them himself. And he did this to save us. A pastor recently shared with me Hebrews 10, 12 through 14, and personally I've just been rereading this, these short three verses for my own soul. I want to share it with you. It says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so when we see injustice and we're tempted to shake our fist at heaven and say, what's God going to do about it? We don't look for God to come and right every wrong because he did it in one act at one point in history. He doesn't have to come and die on the cross every time an unjust act happens or a sin happens. Hebrews makes it clear that he died once a single sacrifice for sins. For injustice. And he's perfected all t- for all time those who are being sanctified. That if you've repented and trusted in Jesus, you are seen as perfect yet being perfected. That's just a good picture of my life, right? Just God sees me as perfect and redeemed, although I am being sanctified. And look at verse 13. It reminds us that there are still enemies of God. There's still people who will, who will rest under the wrathful foot of God for eternity until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. And so these things do coexist, mercy and justice. Now, I can't explain why in God's justice, a sinner and a reprobate like me is shown mercy and forgiven. 
and why others do not. But Romans 9 tells us, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so in God's divine sovereignty, there are those who will experience real justice for eternity, separated forever from God's goodness. A footstool for his feet, wrath and damnation for all eternity in hell. But there are others who are deserving of all that, who are forgiven, shown mercy, and extended grace. And so I propose to you today which one of those camps you fall in. And if you've not repented of your sin, I implore you today to realize that you sit today under the wrathful feet of a just God. And the only hope for you is to return from your sin and throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus Christ. Now let me finish by showing how the story ends. I, I would love to say there's a happy ending. Now Dinah is spared. She's saved. But you may ask, is there repentance from Jacob and his sons? Or is there loving care extended to the orphans and widows that they created in the city? Well, no, there's none of that. Verse 30 says, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? You see what happens at the end of this story. You have the man Jacob and the sons of Jacob. Standing in front of all this calamity and chaos and death and destruction that they've brought about. And at the end of this huge mess, Jacob can't even be grateful that his daughter's okay. He can't even be concerned about the societal problem his sons have created, the genocide that they brought about. No, he's still a coward. He's still just solely afraid of his own demise. He's only worried about himself. He says, guys, they're going to come kill me now. All he's worried about. And then you look at the sons. I mean, they're just acting like little children. Like when you catch a child doing something wrong, they just point the finger. Well, they did this. And literally, his sons stand there, presumably with blood on their hands, physically and literally, with the blood of these men on their hands. And they say, well, they treated her like a prostitute. So we're justified in all this. What you see is self-centered men making everything about themselves. Hear me very clearly. You cannot be a Christian if everything in your life is about you. You can't. Jesus said, if you want to follow him, you have to deny yourself. Put yourself to death spiritually. Your entire existence must be for God's glory. And so we're going to conclude our service today with communion. How we conclude every service, inviting you to a table with bread and juice to commemorate what was done to save you. And to remind yourself that this faith that you walk is for the glory of God and not for yourself. That you come to this table not thankful for your own works, that you've got it together, that you're a good church-going person. You come to this table broken and understanding that you deserve hell and wrath and punishment from God, but Jesus took all that instead. Jesus took all the punishment that you deserved on the cross. 
And his work on the cross is represented in this bread that represents his body and this juice that represents his blood, reminding you week after week of what it costs for you to be in the family of God. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.